For science to advance in big leaps, you need people who not only have a mind for the detail, but also the big picture, and the passion to make transformational change. In this episode, we're talking with a researcher who has big goals to bring equity into genomic medicine in Australia. Hi, I'm Mara Jean Tilley, and this is Medical Minds, the podcast of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. In this series, we're diving deep into the minds of our amazing researchers to find out how they tick and how they are working to make our lives better. With me here is Professor Daniel MacArthur, Director of the Centre for Population Genomics. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, Mara-Jean. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Daniel, you're the director of a brand new initiative, the Centre for Population Genomics. Can we start with the basics? What is genomics? So the term genomics refers to a set of technologies that are ways that we can look at all of the genes in the human genome at the same time, or all of the products that those genes make. So these are things like DNA sequencing technologies that allow us to look at the exact sequence of a person's genome, or things like cellular genomics, where we can look at exactly which genes are switched on or off in a particular cell. Tell us about the human genome. A good way to think about the human genome is basically as a kind of recipe book for making a human. So, so like a recipe book, it's a, it's a set of instructions that, that explains how we make a particular thing, in this case, all of the amazing cells that make up the human body. But like a recipe, uh, the exact way that that recipe turns out will depend on the ingredients that are present and the person that actually cooks it. So the genome will produce a human, but it could be a very different human depending on the environment that it finds itself in. And human disease and human biology, the way that we turn out, is really a combination of our genome and the way that interacts with our environment. What happens when the genome is disrupted? Perhaps variants that are inherited or acquired during one's life? It's important to emphasise that all of us have different DNA. We inherit DNA changes from both of our parents. Each of us also carries about 60 to 80 differences that have occurred in our genome that are different from both of our parents. These are new mutations. The changes that are present in us can affect the the way that our body responds in a particular situation. So, for instance, it could shape our risk of disease. That could be a subtle difference, like it might slightly increase our risk of type 2 diabetes, for instance. Or it could be something catastrophic. In some people, for instance, our gene can be completely broken, either one or two copies of it, so it just doesn't work at all. And often in those situations, what we end up with is a very severe genetic disease, things like muscular dystrophy or cystic fibrosis. How did the Centre for Population Genomics come about? The thing that really squared away my decision to come back to Australia was this amazing opportunity to build a new centre. The centre is pretty unusual. It's a joint initiative between two academic institutions, one of them in New South Wales, the Garvin Institute of Medical Research, and the other one in Victoria, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. The centre is a true joint initiative between the two institutions and the reason we built it in this way is that it gives us a chance to work firstly with two of the leading institutes in genomics in the country but secondly two institutes that have very complementary sets of expertise and skills. The Garvin Institute has a strong background in generating large-scale genomic data and thinking about data science. The MCRI uh, has, has deep strength in rare disease research and in clinical applications. So this was an incredibly exciting opportunity, both to work as part of two leading research institutes, but also to build a centre that was national-facing from the outset and create a research infrastructure that could really scale to the tens or hundreds of thousands of people that we needed it to scale to to achieve our mission. 
Daniel, you've been back in Australia for a couple of years now to build the Centre for Population Genomics. Can you tell us a bit about what you were doing in the States before your return? So I moved back to Australia to start the new centre right at the end of 2019. Before that, I'd been based in Boston for about eight and a half years. And while I was there, I had the chance to work in an amazing place, the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. This is uh, one of the largest genomics research facilities in the world, and it's generated more data on human genomes than pretty much anyone else on the face of the planet. So while I was there, I had the chance to lead two major initiatives. One was focused on using these new genomic technologies, so ways of reading human DNA and other molecules in our cells, to improve the diagnosis of families affected by rare disease. The other initiative that I led was to create a a database called the Genome Aggregation Database, or NOMAD, which was the largest collection of human DNA variation that had ever been assembled, spanning more than 200,000 individuals. These were fun projects in part because they were both projects that had real clinical impact, so they helped people around the world. This was an amazing opportunity because it allowed me to bring together two of the things that I loved. Firstly, a chance to understand human biology and disease but also to do that using the mechanisms of data science and computation at really massive scale. Eight years. That's a long time away from home. What was it that attracted you to come back to Australia? Well, lots of reasons, really. Firstly, Australia was awesome. It's also where my family is. Uh, It was great to have an opportunity to know that my kids could grow up and develop an Australian accent. By then I had three of them. They're already sounding pretty American. But there was also some major scientific opportunities. Australia has changed so much in the 12 years that I was away. There are now new national networks uh, of genomics that are bringing together researchers across the country working in rare disease and other areas. There's a real sense of collaboration and scale that didn't exist in Australia when I left after my PhD so many years ago. And that creates opportunities for the centre to, to build resources at that massive scale. It also provides us with an opportunity to address the fact that many of the communities who are living here in Australia are currently not represented at all in these large international databases of variation. Why is that? Surely Australia is very multicultural and diverse. Absolutely it is. So Australia is is extremely diverse as a nation. More than a quarter of us are born overseas. More than half of us have at least one parent born overseas. But it's also that the communities living here in Australia are very different from the communities that live in the US, the UK and Europe, which are the other places where these really large-scale genome sequencing efforts have been done so far. So that means that unless Australia itself actually focuses on building large-scale resources for these communities, the rest of the world is not going to represent them in these data sets. Why is diversity so important when you're working with large genomic databases? To answer that question, I think it's really important to talk about this exciting time that we're living in in the history of genomic medicine. So we are now at the point where these new genomic technologies, technologies that allow us to read all of the letters of the human genome, Um, at massive scale and hundreds of thousands of individuals are now available. And that means we can, by reading the genome of patients, improve the way that we diagnose their diseases. We can also improve the way that we predict their risk of future diseases. And ultimately, we'll also be able to develop therapeutics that are more tailored to their specific disease and, and their condition. But in order to use these technologies, we need to be able to compare the genetic changes that we find in individual patients with the DNA of hundreds of thousands or ideally millions of people from around the world so we can see whether the individual changes that we find in that particular patient are very rare or actually common in the general population. Now, the precise pattern of genetic changes will differ from population to population around the world. 
So that means if we're studying a patient from, for instance, the Philippines, ideally what we need to be able to do is to compare that person's DNA with DNA from other Filipino individuals from the same community so that we could determine is this particular genetic change something that is very, very unusual for anyone or is it actually a change that's very common in the Filipino community and therefore unlikely to be disease-causing? So how does the diversity and broad genomic representation then work in actual clinical care? It's not just that there's a really clear moral argument for better representation of these populations in genomic research, which is clear, we, we need to do much better in representing them. It's that there's actual practical implications as well. If, if we don't improve the representation of all the world's communities in these genomic data sets, what we'll end up with is a situation where there will be a, a growing disparity in the ability of genomic technologies to provide new diagnoses, to predict someone's risk of disease, to, to design the right therapy for their particular condition. And that gap will continue to grow between people of European and other ancestries that are well represented and those communities that are not represented in these data sets. Daniel, when you talk about the size of these genomic databases, and you're saying the bigger the better, what kind of numbers are we talking about? So it really depends on the question that we're asking. There are some questions that we can answer with smaller genetic databases. So for instance, if, if all we need to know is, uh, is this a common genetic variant in the general population, then uh, looking at perhaps 100 or 500 genomes from a particular community might be enough. But for many other questions, that's nowhere near enough. For instance, if we need to know what is the, the precise combination of genetic variants that might increase someone's risk for a common complex disorder like type 2 diabetes, that requires data set sizes in the tens of thousands. If we need, for instance, to be able to identify and flag very, very rare genetic variants that are associated with severe uh, dominant genetic diseases, then that can also require extraordinarily large data sets, perhaps in the hundreds of thousands. The bigger these data sets are, the more insights we can get from them and the more powerful they are as an indicator of the link between genetic variation and human disease. I would imagine the work that you've done over the years has helped countless patients. In my previous position at the Broad Institute, I co-directed the Centre for Mendelian Genomics, which was a, a centre funded by the National Institutes of Health that ended up applying genomic technologies to more than 10,000 families affected by rare disease. Uh, in that work alone, we were able to return diagnoses back to between 2,500 and 3,000 families. So that's direct return. Um, but one of the things that's been most gratifying to me has been the indirect impact of the other projects we've been working on, such as the Genome Aggregation Database. Now, NOMAD has now become the default reference database for clinical labs all around the world. We don't have exact numbers, but we know that it's been used uh, in the analysis of more than 2 million patients affected by rare disease. And that means that hundreds of thousands of diagnoses have been returned back to families using the data that we've provided as part of that resource. What does a diagnosis mean for patients and their families? So for these really severe genetic conditions, diagnosis is critical for a whole variety of reasons. The first important component of it is that it provides certainty to a family that's often been waiting for many years to get an answer as to the cause of their child's very severe condition. In some cases, too few right now, but a growing number of cases, it provides access to new therapeutics. And that could either be in the context of new approved medicines that are now available, or by providing access to clinical trials that are studying which particular drugs might actually work in that specific disease. There's also a really important community benefit. By knowing exactly which gene is associated with their child's condition, this provides families with the opportunity to connect with big international networks of other families 
who are going through exactly the same thing and maybe further ahead in their journey with their child's disease. That means that they can band together, they can raise money to support the development of new therapies. They can also work with each other to understand what to expect as their child's disease progresses and how best to to work with them to, to treat it. Why do you think Australia could be a global leader in genomic medicine? Australia has some real advantages here. Interestingly, we have almost exactly the right population size. Population size of 26 million people is big enough that we have representation of many rare genetic diseases, but it's small enough that it's actually possible to think about national approaches to infrastructure and to to diagnosis. Secondly, we have real strengths in terms of national networks of researchers and clinicians working together to tackle things like cancer treatment and rare disease diagnosis. And thirdly, we now have large-scale government funding mechanisms that are designed to support the development of genomic medicine. What we haven't yet built is a strong culture of data sharing within the country. We haven't yet built the infrastructure that's needed for really large-scale sequencing, analysis and management of genomic data. And we don't yet have, as a country, deep experience in building up really large-scale, population-scale cohorts of genetic variation. Daniel, what's your big dream for the centre? What are your goals for the next few years? So we built the centre from the outset to focus on impact. The goal here is not to focus on traditional academic metrics of impact, like publications and citations, but instead to think about what are the things that we can build that will actually make a difference to to people, to patients. The centre's work revolves around three domains. Our flagship project, which we're calling Our DNA, is designed to tackle that inequity and representation of, of these communities that I mentioned earlier. So that program will be working very closely with communities uh, through a a long engagement process. Uh, We'll then be recruiting more than 7,000 individuals from these communities and then collecting blood, DNA and cells so that we can build up a resource to better understand the genetic variation that's present in those groups and how that influences their biology and their risk of disease. That program will have immediate clinical benefits by providing a reference data set that improves the diagnosis of uh, patients from those communities that are affected by severe genetic disease. We have two other programs designed to have clinical impact. The first of those is very rare disease focused. This involves working with a network of clinicians around Australia to bring genomic technologies to bear on diagnosing and eventually developing better therapies for those diseases. And the third of our programs, working with Joseph Powell here at the Garvin Institute, is focused on bringing together genetic variation from a whole variety of different communities with a powerful set of technologies called cellular genomics to understand how genetic variation impacts the expression of particular cells within specific cell types. How important is community engagement in what you're trying to do at the centre? It's absolutely fundamental. So the literature on underrepresentation of these communities in genomic research suggests that the biggest challenge here is that many academics leading these large-scale projects have simply never asked, never engaged these communities and brought them into understanding what the research project is about and helping them overcome the barriers to participation. If we do want to end up with a set of reference databases in Australia that are truly representative of our diverse population, that means we need to work directly with the communities from the very beginning. We need to understand what they want from genomic research and their understanding of genomics. And then we need to work with them to co-design studies and messaging and education so that we can be extremely clear about exactly what the benefits and the risks are of a particular study. So for the RDNA program, that means for each of the communities that we'll be working with, we'll be working with a set of stakeholders and community representatives 
through focus groups and other types of activities to really understand exactly what it is that they see in genomics and how we need to tweak the study to fit their particular community. Tell us about the important work underway with Australian Indigenous communities. Uh, This is an incredibly exciting time in working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to understand the way that genetics influences their, their health. Historically, we, there have been very, very few studies of these peoples uh, and particularly the way that genetic variation influences the risk of the many diseases that, um, that affect them, um, often at much higher frequencies than the rest of the Australian population. So things like cardiometabolic disease, for instance, or diabetes or ear infections. We're now very fortunate in Australia to have a national consortium called Connect, led by two amazing Indigenous researchers, Alex Brown and Azure Hermes, that is designed to put together the principles and the governance frameworks that are required for safe engagement of Indigenous communities with genomics research. And the Centre for Population Genomics will be working with the Connect Consortium to provide support around uh, generating of sequencing data and ways that we can manage and analyse data in accordance with those core principles. Daniel, what inspired you to become a scientist? So I've, I've always been interested since I was a kid in the way that the world works. But I didn't really know that I wanted to be a researcher until relatively late. It was pretty serendipitous, actually. Uh, Right at the end of my first year of my undergraduate degree, I had a chance to do a research placement, and I was really lucky enough to spend uh, six weeks in the laboratory of Professor Catherine North. She was leading a research program focused on diagnosing patients and families affected by very severe neuromuscular conditions, so things like muscular dystrophies. And during that period, so six weeks over the summer, I applied a set of technologies, including eventually DNA sequencing, to look at a set of patients with these conditions who had not yet received a diagnosis. And as a summer student, I was amazingly able to actually provide new diagnoses back to two of those patients. And from that moment on, I was basically hooked. The idea that we could use these emerging technologies to directly study someone's DNA to understand exactly what it was that was causing these mysterious diseases and then return that information back to them in ways that they could use was completely captivating. And the rest of my career in many ways has been just thinking about ways that I can take that experience and, and perform that then at a much larger scale. Daniel, before we let you go, we're going to ask you the fast five. Most memorable holiday? Uh, I had six weeks in East Africa. It was fantastic. What did you miss most about Australia when you were overseas? I feel kind of terrible saying this, but actually it was meat pies. I was unable to find, either in the UK or the US, any meat pies that just hold up to the the classic Australian meat pie standard with tomato sauce. Town where you were born? Yeah, I was actually born in the UK, in London, uh, in Paddington Hospital in London. What was the most surprising thing about becoming a scientist? The thing that I was never prepared for in undergraduate was the fact that it turns out that speaking and writing are critical parts of career success. And these are the two skills that really aren't taught, at least when I was going through undergraduate science. What's your coffee order? I lived in America for eight and a half years. I will drink literally any coffee. It doesn't matter. Thank you so much, Professor Daniel MacArthur. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Mara Jean, for having me. If you'd like to know more about Professor Daniel MacArthur's research or the work of the Garvin Institute, head to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Mara Jean Tilly. Thanks for listening.
This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present and emerging.